question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. Precarious employment is increasing in the Hamilton and Greater Toronto area, and its harmful effects on individuals, families, and community life are documented in a recently released research report. Today on the program, we're talking with labor economist Wayne Luchuk and lead author of the research study that explored poverty, employment precarity, and household well-being in southern Ontario. The report seeks to broaden the public discussion around poverty and implicate deteriorating work conditions as a major aspect of poverty and social well-being. You're tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us.
All right, Toronto's Diamond Rings with All the Time off their latest release, Free Dimensional. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and we're syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca in Burnaby. In February, McMaster, University, United Way Toronto, and the Poverty and Employment Precarity in Southern Ontario Research Team released a report. And it was entitled, It's More Than Poverty, Employment Precarity and Household Wellbeing. And it examines the dramatic changes in precarious employment over the last few decades. And it reveals that only 60% of all workers in the Hamilton and Greater Toronto region have stable, secure jobs. And in addition to looking at the impact of precarious employment on individuals, uh, the report also looked at the harmful effect on families and communities. Wayne Luchuk is Professor of Labor Studies and Economics at McMaster University in Hamilton, and he is the lead author of the report, and I reached him in Hamilton, Ontario. If you could provide some context to um, why uh, this report and this research um, was found to be necessary and where, that, where some of these ideas came from. Um, two things that are, that are going on here. First of all, this uh, research is very much a partnership with the uh, United Way Toronto and a number of community agencies. And in many ways, it was the United Way of Toronto that, uh, that raised the idea of this kind of a study in the first place. And they did a study uh, some number of years ago called Losing Ground, which was an assessment of uh, communities in Toronto and what they found was that the communities in Toronto that seemed to be under the most uh, <coughs> excuse me, stress uh, were also communities where there was a lot of insecure, precarious employment. The, uh, <coughs> so they put together a committee and, uh, and brought us together and, and got this process started, I guess, now about four years ago. The other... Um, the other factor was that it, it, we've known for a while now that there's been an increasing prevalence of, of insecure employment in the, in the Canadian labor market. So academic studies have shown this has been increasing quite rapidly. And so whereas in the 1970s, probably about 90% of employment was, was full-time, permanent full-time, uh, that's now closer to 70%. And what we've seen is a real big growth in uh, uh, self-employment, own account self-employment is called. So these are these are self-employed people without employees, so they're consultants and doing other kinds of work like that. We've seen a big growth in employment through temp agencies. Uh, we've seen a big growth in employment in short-term contracts, six months, a year. Um, and all of this uh, got put together, and we said, look, we need to start looking at what are the social implications of, of these changes. And so that's how this study came about. Let's jump into some of those findings um, and, and and relate this specifically to Toronto. I know there's a bit of a geography to this, and some regions um, have higher percentages of precarious employment. But uh, can you uh, run us through a number of the findings from this project? Well, I think one of the one of the key findings is that when we asked people, um, "Do you have a, a full time job that uh, pays you some benefits, so something beyond a wage, so maybe a bit of a pension?" or some health benefits, uh, and that you expect to have that job in a year, uh, only half of our, our sample, so it goes from Hamilton to Toronto, that whole area, and these are people ages 25 to 65, so prime sort of earning years, only half said they had that kind of a job. The other half had something else. Uh, some of them were in uh, this, what we call precarious forms of employment. 
Uh, some of them were in, in permanent part-time employment, uh, and, and about 20% of them were in jobs that might have been full-time, but they didn't know whether they could have those jobs in a year or they were jobs that didn't provide them a pension or any, any kind of benefits. Uh, and these are all markers of uh, jobs that you know, really don't have a, uh, a long-term uh, future uh, in them. And I think that was, a bit, that was quite a surprise, how few people have those old kind of traditional jobs. Think of it as sort of the Ford General Motors uh, kind of job, the IBM jobs, that once you had them, you had them for life. People now are in a much more flexible uh, situation. The other, I think, really key finding that we have found is how this is affecting uh, household well-being uh, and community participation. Uh, in terms of household well-being, this sort of insecurity of employment, so you don't know what your paycheck's going to be in a month, you don't know if you're going to have a job in a month, you don't know what your work schedule is going to be, um, you don't have any buffers against an unexpected health outcome or you know, if your kids get your teeth knocked out or if they want to go to camp, things like that. All this uncertainty is creating stresses in households. Um, and uh, certainly one of the responses that we found was that people are delaying forming households. So they're getting married later, uh, they're delaying decisions to have children. Because, you know, a lot of people are telling us, look, it, I, I don't know what my income is going to be in six months. How can I plan to have ch kids now? Because, you know, they're a long-term commitment. So all those kind of effects uh, came out. The other thing that we found, um, and this was complex, was how this is affecting how people engage in their community. On the one hand, having this kind of flexible, insecure, precarious employment does open up some opportunities for some people to be more engaged in their communities. And this is particularly women, women who are telling us, um, you know, look, I'm not willing to commit to a full-time permanent job because I want to become more engaged in my school, in my community, etc. cetera. Uh, but for other people, this kind of employment was really a barrier. Uh, and they were telling us, look, I, I can't even think about becoming engaged in my community because I'm waiting for the temp agency to call me when I might have work. Or I mean, how can I commit to coaching my kids' ball team on Wednesday night when I don't know my work schedule from week to week? Uh, or... Uh, I can't really volunteer for a place because I can't afford to give my time away for free. I'm always out there hustling, looking for a job, uh, increasing my training uh, to make me more employable, things like that. So in terms of the community part, there was, a, there was a real mix between people who could be more engaged, but then a large number of people who were actually less engaged in their community. And it's those kind of social effects that we're most interested in looking at in, in terms of uh, the long-term future of the project. Mm -hmm. Are there racial and gender dimensions uh, to the findings? Well, I mean, it's certainly true that um, uh, immigrants, people of, of, of color, uh, racial minorities, uh, their, their main access to the labor market has always been through this kind of precarious employment. And that is true also, uh, has also been true for women. Uh, they've long uh, not had access to the kind of privileged jobs that white men had access to. But I think what was surprising in the study is to what extent this new form of employment is reaching into sectors of our society which have formerly been immune from this kind of employment. So the university educated, uh, the uh, uh, white-collar employment, high-tech employment, the, the, the media, the, 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 the arts, these are all areas where maybe in the past there was less of this kind of employment, and now there's been sort of a, a harmonization so there really are not big differences in terms of the insecurity of employment 
between uh, men and women, uh, between whites and, and, and racialized minorities. There are certainly still big differences in terms of pay rates and benefits. So women and racialized minorities are still massively disadvantaged. But this kind of insecurity is now pretty widespread throughout our, our labor market. Hmm. Also, are there are there um, disadvantages to being young um, in terms of accessing stable and, and permanent employment? Yeah, the 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 study itself, we 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 only collected data for people age 25 and up, and in part that's because we've known we've always known that young people, when they first come into the labor market, they tend to access the labor market through less secure employment. They shop around. Then maybe after three or four years, they latch on to a, a good job, a permanent job, um, and, they, and they traditionally stuck with that for a, a long time. I think what we, what we know from uh, other research is that that period of sort of, if you might put it, shopping around uh, is getting longer and longer. And so some people are still in that kind of precarious situation when they're in their 30s, uh, and some people are never going to escape that. So if you're working uh, in the media, for instance, you're almost certainly going to be on some kind of uh, a contract for most of your working life. So I think the real implications for young people uh, are that this kind of insecurity may be a permanent feature of their lives. They may never get onto that permanent job. The other thing I think that we know from uh, other research is that if you do get a permanent job, the, the, the period in which you have that job is getting shorter and shorter. So people are now are finding themselves in their, in their late 40s suddenly being made redundant um, and being pushed back into the labor market, which is increasingly insecure. So that idea of a lifetime job with one employer, is, I think, is becoming a, a myth for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, some of the, the methods that were used. You uh, created an employment precarity index. Um, can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, the, the, the data for the, the study was collected in two ways. One was we did a, a population survey, and so we had just over 4,000 people who did a telephone survey for us um, and answered about 75 questions about you know, the, how they were employed, what were things like in their household, how they engaged in their community. And what we did is we took 10 questions from that survey, which we thought were indicative of, uh, of a, a level of employment security. So we asked people, are, are you employed mainly through a temp agency? Do you know what your schedule is going to be? Can you predict your income uh, in, in six months? Um, we asked them if you had some kind of a health and safety issue. If you raised it, would that jeopardize your long-term employment relationship? And we thought these are all questions which somehow got at the difference between those kind of permanent, secure jobs, uh, unionized jobs versus these new kind of precarious jobs. And then we, bit, we scored people out of 1 into 100, uh, and we used that to try and divide our, our sample into those people who are in precarious employment and those who are not in, in permanent employment. And the advantage of that over simply asking people, are you in permanent employment, are you in temporary employment, is that what we found is a lot of people who say, look, I'm in a permanent job, that job is really not very permanent. And I think the standard for what is permanent is really changing. And so now some people say, look, at moving from a temp agency to a one-year contract, I mean, that's like moving to a permanent job for me. Mm-hmm. And so this is just a, a better picture of really the level of insecurity out there um, in the labor market. Mm-hmm. The other way we collected data is we interviewed 83 people who are in insecure employment in, in, in detail, spent about an hour talking to them, and collected some really uh, fine-grained information on, on what's going on in their lives. Right. Were there any big surprises? I know you mentioned um, 
some of the surprises in terms of um, the, the racial and, and gender dimensions to this, but were there any other surprising findings for you after having studied, you know, precarious labor um, for a substantial amount of time? Any, any shockers out of this? Well, I, I think the one, one, the one real surprise was that 50% number that I talked about mm-hmm. the very deep. I mean, we've, we've sort of, we know from other information from the work of Leo Vosco and other people that, you know, probably 20, 25% of, of the workforce are in uh, temporary contract work, um, uh, own account self-employed. So that's, that's not a surprise. I guess what's surprising was how few people actually have those kind of what we call a standard employment relationship, you know, a permanent job, one employer, provide you some benefits. You know, only half the population has that, and that, that was a real surprise. And it was a surprise how widespread that is throughout the economy. So it's, 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 not, it's not just a few pockets where this is prevalent. It's really throughout the entire economy. And I think that's what's raising uh, the attention of the media, to be quite honest with you, suggesting there's a new labor market out there, and it's not the same as the old one. Let's talk about some of the causes and and um, maybe a number of the reasons we're seeing uh, these transformations in the labor market. Um, what to what significant effect does economic restructuring within the GTA um, play into this? Um, well, I mean, it is it's certainly a factor, but I think I, mean, I think the bigger change is how companies do business has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back to the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. You know, employers, you know, they they tried to they tried to keep their workers. They tried to nurture them. They tried to build a long-term relationship with employers. They saw them as assets, and so they trained them. They provided you know health benefits for them. They provided pensions, uh, with the idea that someone would be with them for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, and I think what we're seeing now, increasingly, employers have moved to a different kind of model where um, they really see, in many ways, workers as a liability, as a cost, something to be minimized, um, and uh, you know, not something to be invested in uh, to the same extent as they did before. So there's certainly still a core of workers who have those kind of good jobs that employers tried to keep, but around those core of workers is a growing number of, of, of workers who are seen as uh, expendable, uh, temporary, precarious, you can recruit them through a temp agency. You can have them on short-term contracts. You can let someone else worry about training them. Uh, and they're doing this, to be frank, to meet competitive pressures. There's re- there's, there are real pressures, cost pressures on employers, whether in the private or the public sector. And so they're using this new form of, of, of temporary and insecure employment to keep costs down. But certainly one of the realities is if you're in one of these temporary positions, you're paid a lot less, um, and you're also um, almost unlikely to have benefits. Uh, and so it's a lot cheaper to have these kinds of workers. This is quite, an, that's, yeah. that's a big change that, that is happening. Quite in contrast to uh, the International Labor Organization's principle that, that uh, this is going back to 1944, labor is not a commodity, that, that principle that they had established. I think certainly um, we're seeing perhaps that labor is indeed a commodity and treated more like that. With yeah, I, I think you're. You know, I think there's a lot of a, a lot of truth to that. So, I mean, again, not all workers. So there's been a real polarization in the labor market. So for some workers, uh, this is a great time to be in the in the labor market. You know, for some workers, you know, it, with skills that are in demand, there's 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 good pay, there's good benefits. But there's also now a growing group, and it's you know, 
potentially becoming a, a majority who are on who are in these uh, service jobs, uh, retail jobs, uh, on contracts, um, and and they're just all precarious and not getting paid very well. And what's really disappeared is those jobs in the middle, uh, manufacturing, unionized jobs, uh, you know, even jobs in the in the university, which you know used to be secure. Increasingly, there you're seeing a lot of people who are on contracts and 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 temporary positions, and so that's that's been a real big change. Now, I I was surprised to read this, and I hope I'm not mistaken, but was one of the findings that manufacturing jobs were some of the most precarious jobs these days? Is that correct? Well, that's uh, that's exactly right, and, yeah. and I think I mean we're seeing that you know you may be in a workplace that's that's uh, unionized but has been around for 30 years, but just Things are are changing so rapidly that that these businesses are going they're going out of business. Yeah. You know, again, the survey was done, uh, you know, right just right after the, the the crisis, and so it certainly reflects the the crisis in manufacturing in general. I want to also ask you specifically about temp agencies. Um, they they serve as a labor market intermediary, but can you talk more about the role that they play uh, within Toronto and Ontario more broadly? Um, quite. Yeah, uh, they- yeah. They've become a, a, a more and more a more and more important source of labor recruitment for firms, um, and you know they've marketed themselves. Uh, they're no longer just providing sort of the Kelly girl, the this, the office replacement. You can now get temp workers in almost any kind of occupation, um, and they've really broadened that out. And they've really marketed themselves as providing short-term solutions to uh, labor demand problems. Uh, and certainly, the, the the people that we talk to who are employed mainly through temp agencies, on the one hand, they say, "Look, the temp agency, you know, provides a service. It links us up with employers, and that's great." Uh, on the other hand, there's you know a real ambivalence that you know the temp agency takes a big cut of the wage uh, as, as their fee. Uh, these people, they don't know their their uh, their their schedule. They don't have much much security. There's some real confusion between who is the employer. Is it the place where you're working, or is it the temp agency? Who's responsible for your health and safety? And so there's all kinds of real concerns out there about using this way, This as a way of, of satisfying labor uh, supply and labor demand. Well, what do I do when I wake up at 6.30 and I am in the city? I go back to sleep and wait for the streets to wake me.
Sometimes I just don't feel like it. Guess we all have to try. And sometimes you don't wanna. But we all have to try. Movies are a great way to understand the culture and thought process of a generation. And the 7th Annual Taiwanese Film Festival is taking place at the Downtown Vancouver International Film Center from June 14th to 16th. It will be featuring some of the best Chinese films from the small island of Taiwan. Come and experience a different world and get to know more about the many groups of people living in this awesome city. For more details, please visit twff.ca. Again, that is twff.ca. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And this is The City here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast uh, anytime at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and on the program, I'm talking with Wayne Luchuk. He's professor of labor studies and economics at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And we've been discussing a recent uh, report jointly released by McMaster and uh, United Way Toronto, among um, some other organizations. Um, and that's called It's More Than Poverty, Employment Precarity and Household Wellbeing. And it's examining uh, the rise of um, precarious employment over the last few decades uh, in the gr- greater Toronto area and um, has, has made a number of um, quite uh, alarming uh, findings. So uh, we're going to continue with the second uh, part of uh, my discussion with uh, Professor Luchuk. And in this part, uh, we're talking about the role of public policy in shaping um, and, and uh, really, uh, in many ways, legally um, uh, shaping the employment relationship and the way that, uh, that people are able to navigate the labor market and a lot of the socioeconomic implications and outcomes. So when we talk about uh, household well-being, um, how, do, how, does, you know, how do employment standards play into this, among other um, legal um, but also policy um, options and, and solutions? So this is part two. This is uh, Professor Wayne Luchuk uh, from McMaster. He's one of the lead authors of uh, the recently released report from February of this year. Uh, again, it's more than poverty. I want to ask you about um, the role of, of public policy and, and um, specifically labor market policy and employment standards in regulating sort of the contours of the employment relationship. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a real problem there because there's a lot of public policy that has uh, has has uh, accentuated this drift towards uh, insecure employment. So you can look at sort of the proposals, the recent proposals around uh, unemployment insurance, which really will force people to take lower-paying jobs and and jobs that are further away. And undoubtedly, this is going to make people more desperate to to take a job. They can't wait for a job that they think is appropriate to their skills. So that's going to increase the amount of insecure employment. The, you know, the, the use of temporary foreign workers and 
and, and, and the tremendous increase in that in, in Canada over the last little while. Uh, again, this creates competition for Canadian workers, um, and, and quite clear it's going to force them into less secure uh, positions. But in terms of labor standards, I mean, there's a real issue there that, you know, we have labor standards. They're not all that well enforced, to be frank, by, by the, the government. You know, when they went to cost-cutting, uh, inspectors were one of the first groups to get cut, uh, although there's been some uh, attempt to prevent that here in Ontario with some success. Uh, but the real problem here is if you're in a temporary uh, job and you're on a six-month contract and you're hoping to get another six-month contract from the same employer, you're not likely to complain. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's health and safety regulations or employment standards, uh, a lot of these things go uh, unenforced. And the research we have shows very clearly that when there are complaints about uh, not following employment standards, it's almost always after the employee has left the employee of an employer. Uh, they're very reluctant to raise these things while they're still employed because they're, 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 they're hoping that they can still get another contract and they'll just keep quiet in order to do that. So there's a real problem with using these standards given the, the power relationships that exist out there for a lot of workers. Now, what's the relationship between uh, unionization and uh, challenges to unionize and um, temporary or contingent forms of employment? Yeah, these, this is a real problem for unions. Uh, you know, the reality is the majority of people in precarious employment are not unionized. Um, those that are unionized do tend to have somewhat better conditions, more likely to get benefits. But for the labor movement, it's been really tough to get a handle on how to organize uh, these folks who, who don't really have a, a single employer that they belong to. And our, our, our labor uh, relations system and, and how we recognize mm-hmm. unions sort of assumed uh, a stable workplace and a stable workforce. Uh, and now increasingly people are on six-month contracts. They're moving from employer to employer. Um, and unions just have had a real devil of a time figuring out how to bring representation of those workers. Now, this, the new union, the merger between the CAW uh, and, and, and CEP, um, is, is trying to reach out to this group of, of, of workers, and we'll see what kind of success they have. Hmm. Now, you're based out of, uh, out of McMaster in Hamilton, Ontario, and, and Hamilton has a long labor uh, history. Um, what does the landscape in a place like Hamilton look like compared to 30 years, 40 years ago? Uh, yeah, pretty different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty. When I, uh, as I've been, I've been at Mac now for just over thirty years, and when I came here, Stelco, uh, which was the, one of the main steel uh, producers, uh, they had thirteen thousand employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're down to about six hundred now in Hamilton, and even those jobs are under threat. They now own by U.S. Steel, uh, and they're under threat. So the there's been a real uh, disappearance of those kind of a uh, male breadwinner standard employment relationship jobs in the city, um, and you know what they're what we what we're seeing now is that uh, if you look at sort of average income of men and women in the city, whereas in the 70s you know men were clearly making two three times that of the average woman, uh, now uh, there's actually very little difference, and so what we've seen is a real spread of, of part-time employment in the city. We've seen the spread of uh, uh, contract employment. Uh, and the one thing that has, in, in some ways, uh, improved things in the city is uh, Hamilton has become a real center for health research, education, uh, and, and some of those jobs are, are relatively secure. But in terms of the manufacturing sector, 
it's a very different scenario than it was uh, 30 years ago. What do you think the the employment and the labor landscape is going to look like in the next 20 years in places like Hamilton, places like um, Toronto more broadly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's that's. I mean, that's the million dollar question. Yeah. Um, look, I, I don't think that we're going back to the 1950s and the 1960s uh, to when you know most jobs were permanent, full time, and secure. And you know, in some ways, there's good reasons for that. I mean, that was a a, a time when uh, to be frank, you know, white men had access to privileged employment. Uh, everyone else was scrambling uh, and in, in less secure employment. So there was a real gender and, and, and racial dimension to that. Uh, you know, I think having a, a permanent full-time job for 30 or 40 years, I mean, there's certainly some upsides, but there's also some downsides. And so I think what we have to figure out is a way to allow workers to retain some flexibility, but not bear uh, all of, I think, most of the cost of that in terms of not having benefits, not having any uh, income security. And so what I think, you know, I think what we're moving, we will move towards, I hope, is a future labor market, which on the one hand uh, does have some flexibility, uh, which is good for employers, but can also be good for employees. But at the same time, we we find different ways of delivering things like pensions, health benefits, training, which in the 60s and 70s, we sort of allocated that to employers. They're just not doing that anymore. We're going to have to find different ways uh, of figuring this out. And, you know, there are some emerging models that have some potential that uh, we could build on. The construction trades, you know, that's a sector which has had a long history of uh, contract employment. Uh, Most skilled tradespeople, um, you know, they work for a three-month contract on one building, and then they go to a three-month contract on another building, um, and the union sort of allocates labor using a, a, a hiring list, a hiring hall, and it's the union that provides the benefits. So when you have a job, you're get, you get paid a wage by the employer, and then the employer also maybe then kicks in another 20%, which goes to the union, and they cover the pension costs, they cover the health benefits and, and, and other kind of benefits. And so that way you have contract work, but you still have those supplemental benefits that give you some security. Um, we're, we're seeing this model increasingly now being applied in the arts and the media mm-hmm. because that's a sector that really has gone to contract labor in the last little while. And so, again, the union is stepping in to fill some of that space that the employers have, have vacated. You know, I think the state, to be frank, is going to have to play a bigger role in providing these benefits. Uh, you know, I think the whole debate around pensions right now, it's quite clear what we need is a pretty massive increase in the uh, Canada Pension Plan, uh, because the reality is very few, fewer and fewer people have pensions now that will sustain them in old age. So, uh, you know, I think, we, I think the future is potentially bright, but it's going to take some uh, real agitation on the part of people who are in these precarious jobs to, to make changes. I, I look around at a lot, a lot of younger people um, in various um, different sectors, and I, I can't help but think that also a, an issue here and uh, I think a political issue and a, and a challenge for organizing is uh, the class identification that perhaps 30 years ago uh, existed in a way that um, has been eroded so that the, the the working class identity or you know now perceived everyone is perceived to be middle class I think yeah. poses some significant challenges to to how well, we I organize. Think more people are figuring out that their hold on the middle class is pretty tenuous. Yeah. Again, there's, we, we've been quite surprised at the uh, response to our study and the interest. 
you know, we've had thousands of downloads of the study. You know, we've done hundreds of talks now. And I, what, my, my, my perspective on this is the following, that I think a lot of people have come to a sense that there's something, there's something not right in our labor market. Something has gone wrong. And I think that includes three, three big groups of people. One, I think, is young people who are increasingly frustrated with the options that they're being presented after completing university or college training. You know, they're just not getting the kind of jobs that would allow them to start families, to enter into relationships, to maybe buy, buy a house, uh, things like that. So that's one group. I think there's a second group who are, who are in their 40s who had that, those good jobs and now have lost them because the, 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 the pace of, of change is just so rapid in our economy right now, right? So you can, you know, 10 years ago, you're working for RIM and you think you're on top of the world, and then within five years, RIM's under, uh, under attack and it's falling apart. And so there's, there's no real stability, even if you're in a, in a good situation today, that you'll be there in five years. And I think people are finding that in, the, in those middle years, when they get turfed back on the labor market, they're having trouble getting back into a good kind of job. And so they're concerned about the labor market. And then I think the third group, to be frank, are parents who they may have good jobs, but they're seeing that their, their kids can't get into these jobs and they're sticking around the home longer. Um, you know, they, they see the, the frustration of their children. I think that's a coalition of people who, you know, you can bring together and say, look, we, we need to make some changes. And, and, I, and I think that's the message that we're, that we're hearing out there. Uh, so a whole new group of people who are increasingly frustrated with the options that they see available to them. Do you think this is enough to, I mean, we've seen successive um, incidents, the RBC outsourcing, um, the foreign temporary workers, and yet I, I, I still, like, I, I see there's political frustration um, within um, broader Canadian society, but is this enough to really trigger um, massive policy changes in, in, in the direction that I think we need to see? Yeah, you know, change comes from surprising places. Uh, and I think you're, you're right to be pessimistic at the moment, um, but I think it's, you know, one has to be careful to predict what's around the corner if you mm-hmm. can't see them. Uh, you, know, you know, think of what, what has happened in South America in the last decade. I mean, who would have thought that those kind of changes would take place that rapidly in, in, in that region? Um, you know, the, the outrage uh, at, the, at the, the temporary foreign workers issue and the, the RBC and this mine up in, 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 in B.C., um, again, I think there's a real groundswell there of, uh, of uh, uh, unease. And I think, you know, it's the job of, you know, people like our research group and, and other groups to, you know, keep this issue on the agenda and to offer possibilities for change. Uh, because, you know, right now it, it, is a, it is a challenge, and I think the dominant, the dominant force right now is, you know, competitiveness, globalization. You know, we've been through 20 years now where the argument is, you know, employers need more flexibility, um, and that's the only way they can compete. You know, they need lower wages. But, you know, the Occupy movement was an example of outrage at what's going on. Uh, and, and, I, and I think we, you know, we need to keep building on these things. It's not going to happen all at once, but um, I, I think we need to remain optimistic that change is possible. Mm-hmm. You, you do mention the, the factor of globalization and the, the international dimension to all of this, where wages um, are being, you know, drawn down across across the world and and sort of the the Fordist uh, standard wages has in many ways disappeared. What are those challenges to really seeing the broader picture of can we can we address these things if we are only looking at our own um, little pocket of the world? 
or is there uh, or is there a broader is there a broader uh, framing to a lot of this discussion about how we look at at labor across mm-hmm. the world? Yeah, but you know, you know, I think we have to be careful to blame everything on globalization. Uh, and there's, you're absolutely right. There is tremendous um, pressure on on wages in a number of sectors uh, from uh, from some of these these other regions. But the reality is that Canada per person today is richer than it was uh, in 2008 when the crisis first hit. And in 2008, Canada per person was richer than it was in 1998. And in 1998, Canada per person was richer than it was in 1988. So, I mean, the, the story here is we're a rich society. And I think what we're really seeing is that that wealth is is not being evenly distributed either in terms of income or in terms of employment security. Uh, that the, the gains of the last 25 years have all gone to the top 5 or 10%. And so I think what we need to, to, to think about is how to share the wealth that we have more equitably. So uh, that, that's one thing that makes me, that makes me uh, optimistic. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not as if we become impoverished as a result of globalization. We're actually a richer society. Mm-hmm. We're just not sharing those riches uh, at all uh, uh, evenly. So, you know, I think there are, there are reasons why we, we should be optimistic. Your um, report um, provides a number of recommendations. Can you briefly discuss a few of those? And also, uh, I'm curious whether the findings and, and the recommendations have been well received by um, policymakers as well. Sorry, I, I didn't catch that. You're, you're cutting out there. Can you, your report makes a number of recommendations. Can you uh, explain a few of those uh, specific recommendations to address a number of these issues? And then secondly, uh, I'm curious whether the findings and your recommendations have been well received by policymakers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, uh, we see ourselves very much at the beginning of sorting out the policy implications, not at the end. Mm-hmm. But we sort of cast a, a quite a broad and wide net in terms of what we think needs to be done. Um, and we talked about, uh, you know, we need to think about, about how to make sure that jobs are a path to security. And this could be changes which encourage employers to convert some of these short-term temporary jobs into more permanent jobs. Uh, this could be uh, a closer regulation of temp agencies to give people some, some new rights. Uh, and so that's sort of one brewery in which we, we felt we needed to think about uh, uh, policy. A second one was a, a, a concern that in this new labor market, the kind of training people need to to move up the job ladder is, is no longer being provided by employers. So the, the old, I mean, it, it was a fantasy, but it wasn't completely un, un, unrelated to reality of uh, someone starting in the mailroom and eventually becoming the CEO of the company. I mean, that's not going to happen anymore because the, the person in the mailroom is probably a temp worker. Uh, and so they're not getting that kind of training exposure or long-term uh, future in, in a company. And so I think how we deliver training and retraining really needs to be thought about. And this isn't just figuring out how to match the unemployed to jobs, which I think is the focus of, of the current government. It's really about how to take people who are in, 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 in uh in, in entry positions and to give them the skills, allow them to move up the organization so they're not trapped forever in an entry position. So I think that whole issue of human capital 
um, is, is, is the second big issue that we need to think about. And then the third area that we, we thought we need to think about was well, how do we support families, how do we support communities? And there, that's, you know, there's a couple of issues there. One is this, this whole problem that increasingly people, they don't have benefits, so they don't have dental benefits, they don't have health benefits. And so now if, you're, if your kid you know, gets their teeth knocked out and they need a 1000 or $2,000 dental bill, well, that's, that's on your own uh, uh, budget. You're not getting any kind of help with that. And that can have really negative implications on, on, on households and, and stresses. Now, how do we find ways to allow people to engage in their community when they don't know what their work schedule is? Uh, how do we find new kinds of daycare? So it's not just even a question of the amount of daycare, which is an issue, but people in precarious employment, they need daycare that's flexible because um, you know, they, they don't know what their schedule is going to be. So it's not just that they need daycare Monday to Friday um, from, uh, from 8 till 6. Sometimes they need it in the evening. Sometimes they need it in weekends. Uh, and so how do, we, how do we provide that kind of support to families and communities? So those are sort of the big bins mm-hmm. that, um, that we want to start exploring. And we're, we're actually meeting this week to, to continue that process and to bring people together to talk about that. In terms of the reception of our report politically, it's had a reception that we couldn't have imagined, to be quite honest with you. Mm. So Premier Wynne, Wynne, the uh, Premier of Ontario, just a week after becoming Premier, uh, agreed to come to our launch and spoke at, at the launch uh, in, in February. And that really raised the profile uh, of that. We've uh, had meetings with all of the political parties uh, in Ontario, except for the Conservatives. Uh, we've had uh, uh, briefings with the, the Ministry of Labour and various other ministries here in, 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 in the province. We have gone up to Ottawa, where we've spoken to the Conservatives and the Liberals and the NDP about uh, you know, what's, uh, uh, what, what our ideas are. Uh, you know, we've been keeping track of how many times our report is mentioned on the floor of the House of Parliament, mm-hmm. and it's been mentioned now a number of times. And so it's quite clear that the report has hit a, hit a, hit a nerve uh, and is receiving a lot of attention, more than we, to be quite frank, ever expected. Okay, well, that's great to hear. I also just want to end by asking you whether the title of this of this study is It's More Than Poverty, and I just want to ask you if this is really intended to complicate the way that we think about poverty. Sometimes the idea of poverty um, is reduced to very simplistic um, ideas or um, doesn't adequately explain the complexity of, of the lived experiences of poverty. Was that one of the aims to bring... Yeah, impl- I mean, that's, a, that's, that's, that's a great question to actually end on. Uh, I mean, you're actually we're very conscious of, of that title because I think there are... Um, poverty is a huge issue. The minimum wage is too low. People need uh, more money. And that is, that's, that's fairly easy to see. And one of the things about poverty is it's, it's kind of easy to measure. Uh, you know, it's not it's not without its problems, but you ask people how much money they have, and then you set some kind of a level, and you say those people below that level are in poverty. What I think our study is saying is that you know, poverty also has an insecurity dimension to it, so that you can be low-paid and insecure, you can be low-paid and secure. And those are two real different situations. And what we've found is that if you are, if you are in poverty, but also you're you have no control over future employment, you don't know what your schedule is going to be, you're working through a temp agency, the social implications of that are way larger than if you're in this $30,000 a year job, uh, but you say, I'm going to have that job next year as well, maybe I get a few little benefits as well, so I have some security. Those people just do a whole lot better. 
And I guess one of the real surprises is that people who, in quotes, have escaped poverty, so they're in the fifty dollars to $100,000 range in terms of family income, um, but they're in insecure employment, they have many of the same social characteristics as the low-paid, insecure people. And I think what the real policy message is, we need to raise minimum income, but that's not enough. Mm-hmm. We also have to address this issue that people can be in low-pay and insecure employment, and we need to figure out a way of giving those people some more security in their lives. Not only more money, but more security. Well, Professor Luchuk, thank you so much for your time. This was a, a wonderful discussion. My pleasure. Okay, take care now. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. I caught up with Professor Wayne Luchuk uh, in Hamilton, Ontario, by the phone. And he is a uh, lead author of uh, the recent uh, report uh, published by United Way Toronto, uh, looking at poverty, employment precarity, and household well-being in southern Ontario. And this is The City, and this wraps up uh, the program uh, for today. Uh, the City is broadcast here live on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF, CJSF.ca, um, and that's Fridays at 10 a.m. And we're here live uh, Tuesdays 5 to 6 p.m. on CITR. If you missed any part of the program, uh, you can download it as a podcast at thecityfm.org. You can catch The City live here on CITR on Tuesdays, as I mentioned. And uh, be sure to follow The City on Twitter with the handle thecity underscore fm. And also uh, check us out on Facebook by searching The City Critical Urban Discussions. Again, you can find the program as a podcast at thecityfm.org and uh, lots of exclusive web content there as well. So have a look. Um, if you have any con- uh, comments about the program, uh, you can also leave those either on the Facebook page or on the website. Again, thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. <laughs> When the morning comes And I don't want to face the daylight When the morning comes And I can't make my body rise When the morning comes And the darkness presses on all sides When the morning comes I have to Oh